and welcome to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, we discuss the importance of experience, the breadth and height of experience, and the crucial need to allow for all experiences in how we understand our humanity and foster genuine culture. We'll also cover some nuts and bolts about teaching. Joining me for this interesting interview is Lee Trepanier, Professor of Political Science at Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Besides teaching courses that focus on classic works of philosophy, theology, and fiction, he offers online reflections through his program on Substack called Then and Again. Finally, Lee Trepanier is the editor of the online journal Vogland View. I conducted the interview from Kane Academy's headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Professor Trepanier joined me from his home in Alabama. Well, good morning, uh, Lee Trepanier. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Kane Academy Podcast Network. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm very well. I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. We're really honored. Lee, you're the editor of the Vogelin View, an outstanding online journal. I was wondering if you could spend a couple of minutes telling us about the meaning of that title, the Vogelin View. Uh, sure. Vogelin View, it's obviously taken the, the perspective of Eric Vogelins, who is a political philosopher um, who taught initially in Vienna and then in, um, came, emigrated to the United States after the, the Nazis took over Austria. But the perspective of Vogelin view is really informed by his philosophy, which is um, sort of steely-eyed realism, but also sensitive to spiritual reality, uh, wanting to analyze subjects critically, but be, uh, but avoid ideological or Kant or cliche analysis. Um, and so we see our journal as sort of um, political philosophy as a type of public commentary. And we publish daily. We publish a variety of, of pieces, um, academic articles, public intellectual essays, uh, book reviews. Um, and we, re- we really publish on all aspects of uh, culture, politics, religion, science, education. And we're always uh, looking for submissions. So if anyone's yeah. interested, feel free to email me. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I've noticed that there are articles on film, uh, visual art, uh, philosophy, history, poetry. It's really a, a magnificent uh, rush across the, the span of the humanities and, and as you say, culture. So uh, I, I encourage everybody in the audience to take a look at the Vogelin view. Vogelin wrote often about experience. And on the surface, that sounds like such a, a mundane or maybe an obvious topic. And maybe someone doesn't stop and think about what that means. But what did Eric Vogelin mean by experience? Why was it so important to his work? Uh, well, for Vogelin, uh, experience is, is sort of the starting point of philosophy for him. So I, I would try. I would describe it as, as uh, when he talks about experience, it's our encounter with the world. Mm-hmm. It's how do we make sense of the world? How do we interact with the world? How do we find meaning in the world? And how do we articulate that? Mm-hmm. So um, one way to think about it um, is for Vogelin is that he, he wants to experience all aspects of the world or all aspects of reality. So one way to think about it is uh, sort of on a, a vertical axis, you could say a human being experiences spiritual reality, uh, the reality of reason, and the, the reality of the passions. 
And then on a horizontal axis, you could say that a human being experiences, um, sort of individual experience, his existence in society, and sort of a historical existence. And so what's crucial for Vogelin is that a human being, uh, when he, they encounter the world, it's a, the full range of these um, aspects of reality. It includes spiritual reason and the passions as well as individual societal and historical existence. Um, he calls this the balance of consciousness, or sometimes he uses the word metexu, uh, which he borrows from Plato's Symposium, sort of this in-between state where no one aspect of reality dominates uh, your encounter with the world. And one of his criticisms of, say, moder- of some modern thinkers is that they tend to um, either have one aspect of reality dominate their thinking, or they uh, ignore a certain aspect, usually it's the spiritual aspect in their analysis. So, for example, like Marx, you know, he gives a very compelling analysis of um, economic conditions, but in Marx, you, you'll see that spiritual reality is um, removed in his analysis. And for Vogelin, that's a, a fundamental error. He really wants to have human beings experience all aspects of reality. Mm-hmm. Would it be uh, fair to say then that? <clears throat> or, well, actually, let me ask this question: Is it the case that uh, not only would some philosophers reduce their inquiry to experiences less than the full range that Vogelin would include? Is it is it also the case that they would start from a, a, a different starting point? In other words, uh, they would start from something other than experience, an, an abstraction, for example, or, or something along those lines. Well, I would, I would, I would, I think for Vogel, it would be they would start from yeah a different aspect of of the world, such as abstraction, uh, which which um, which would sort of distort their findings and, and and arguments of of reality. So I think that's that's exactly right. Or some cases, um, you could um, some people may just focus on say historical existence and ignore. Um, that human beings exist as individuals and within society. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's very, I think it's very interesting. Vogel is very useful that way because he sort of lays out a continuum of experiences and you can sort of map out and say, oh, well, have these sort of thinkers hit all these aspects of reality? And if they haven't, there's ones missing both on the vertical and horizontal axis. Um, there may be something a little de- uh, defective in their thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you gave one example of Marx, who uh, in the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts prohibits questions about origins, which some version of which could lead us to ask questions about God or about creation, about the, the, the start of things. Um, another example would be someone like Hobbes, who would who recognizes that people are in conflict. We, the war is a phenomenon that happens uh, in, in history, uh, but he seems to reduce uh, nature to, to conflict, to war, to, to those kinds of things. Is that a, another good example? I, I, no, exactly, exactly. And, and someone, also with someone like Marx, he does what, um, he also pro- he projects in the future, right? Uh, and so he takes historical existence, a certain form of it, and projects that the dialectical conflict will end with you know the communist uh, state, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, and again, this would be 
uh, another aspect of Vogelin with regard to experience is that we don't know what the future is. The future is unknown. And, and it's, it's really foolish for thinkers um, to cl- make claims of, of the future with any type of certainty. Mm-hmm. I love the way you described uh, the continuum of experience. Uh, in, on one level, it, it helps us in the audience understand what the Vogelin view as a journal is all about and, and why, you know, I, I noted early on that it, there are things about poetry, film, politics, you know, the whole gamut of, of culture. And it make, that helps us make sense of that a little bit more now in the way you describe the continuum of experience. It also soberly reminds us of some of the shortcomings of the way uh, public discourse is engaged today and, and uh, how in the academy and secondary schools, you know, the educational challenge today is that there, there are some real um, encroachments on the full breadth of the humanities, the full breadth of, of cultural studies. And speaking of, of educational projects, I was wondering if you could tackle this question. Do you think that there are some classic works of imaginative and expository literature that are particularly suited to moving us, engaging us in the experiences that are most important, the kinds of things that, that Eric Vogelin uh, was so devoted to and, and that you and, and other Vogelin scholars have, have carried the mantle for? Well, I, I would say, generally speaking, uh, that I think works of literature are probably a better entry point for students than, say, analytical works or expository works. Um, it, it's, so, you know, sort of to put it simply, I, you know, I would assign say Plato before Aristotle, mm-hmm, yeah, or, or Augustine before Aquinas, or or Charles Dickens before Marx. I mean, it, I think it's uh, it's just a better entry point for them. It's more concrete. It appeals to their imagination. Students can relate to that more. Um, so, for example, like Plato's Republic is, is sort of a classic work. Um, but also, it, it does sort of, in some ways present sort of the continuum of experiences that Vogelin speaks about. If you recall, um, when Socrates creates this sort of ideal city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have the, the ruling class, the guardians, which represent sort of a spiritual or life of reason reality. The, um, um, the, the military, the guardians, which is um, sort of thematic aspect, the spirited part of our reality. And then you have the merchants and the farmers, sort of the, the, the passions. And so uh, the Pro- Republic is a good way of sort of exposing students to a continuum of experiences that Volkman speaks about. And also, the latter end of the republic, where he goes through the cycles, right, of, of decay from democracy to oligarchy to democracy to tyranny, that really is just sort of a historical analysis of, of change, of, of political change, and, and that's another and within a societal context, which also sort of hits that um, society and historical aspect of, on the sort of horizontal axis that, that Vogelin speaks about in experience. Um, so the republic is a great work that sort of uh, exposes students to a full continuum of experiences that Vogelin talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's others too. Augustine's Confession is a great one, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, it's, um, I think students find it very interesting because they see, you know, they see that he's a human being with all sorts of failures and foibles and mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, in that, reading that autobiography, you see sort of the range of experiences that Augustine encounters to his conversion to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'll just add one more. So one of my favorites um, is is the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which is I know it's a tough sell to students. <laughs> here's, a, here's a thousand page novel we're gonna read, um, but 
you know, again, you have the full range of experiences, um, and, and sometimes some some analysis, which um, you know, they say, they look at the three brothers, and they'll say like Alyosha represents spiritual reality, you know, Ivan represents sort of life of the intellect that's detached from spiritual reality, and Dmitri represents the life of the passions, and so you can sort of follow each character and, and sort of see how they uh, sort of correlate with sort of Vogelin's. Uh, vertical analysis of spiritual uh, intellect and the passions in, in terms of our encounter with the world. Mm-hmm. So the so uh, I like all those examples very much. Those are such wonderful texts, and yeah, each one actually has its own challenges in terms of pitching them to students. You know, so um, the uh, the Plato's Republic looks very daunting. It's very difficult to get through. And, Augustine, sometimes, you know, modern students go, you know, boy, it's a lot of attention to a lot of personal details. And, you know, it's difficult to follow him or maybe even, you know, the, the sensitive believer thing. Well, why doesn't he just go ahead and, you know, become a Christian? You know, it's a, there's a, but, but that's part of the drama of it. You know, it's interesting. So the, you mentioned the, uh, the uh, description of the decline of the polis and, you know, the different types of poli and, and the decline down to tyranny. And uh, you just uh, mentioned that as an historical study. So is that part of the what you call the steely-eyed realism of Eric Vogelin? That he, he, it's not just that he has his eye on ontology or metaphysics, but he, he also has his eye on uh, the concrete historical unfoldings of, of political life, or in the case of Augustine, of personal life, or in the case of the brothers Karamazov. He's attending to the variety of human beings who in this modern world have to work out what it means to be human. And, and it's, you know, it's, there's no, no univocal, there's no univocal uh, being a human. That is, everybody has to work through this. Each person has to work through this. And, and the, the steely-eyed realist has to take account of this wide variety of uh, responses. Is, is that a fair way to, to capture Vogelin? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I think Vogelin, on the one hand, recognizes that everyone has capacity for, um, you know, a, a, to lead a, a spiritual fulfilling and intellectually fulfilling life. But the reality is that only a few people are capable of it, for whatever reason that is. And so, um, you know, he states it's a mystery. We just don't know why that is. And, and it's the same thing with politics. We can certainly expect politics to um, aspire to some sort of common good or, or some sort of, um, uh, you know, hope. But, you know, the reality is more often than not, politics is, you know, often fails us mm-hmm. in our aspirations too. So he, he's, he, Vogelin, I was, if you contrast Vogelin with, say, some like ideological thinkers that want to sort of, you know, here's my plan to build a utopia on earth, um, uh, Vogelin would, would be, um, would oppose that. He doesn't think, you, you could build a heaven on earth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you, uh, as you were growing up, did you have any teachers that were especially formative? Uh, and, and, I, and I ask that again because so many of our our listeners are teachers, and so much of the Kane Academy mission is devoted to the art of teaching. And you're so articulate, and you're you've got such a great journal going, and a, and a fine career. And I've read. Um, some of your uh, scholarly writings, and you're, you're doing such a making such a really important contribution. But I'd like to know, you know, in your earlier years, did you have teachers who were uh, in an important way formative for you? Uh, I did. I, I have I have uh, three teachers from high school come to mind actually. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, 
I'll, I'll be honest, I was sort of a mediocre student <laughs> until high school. I, um, I didn't really see the whole point of schooling. <laughs> oh, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> sort, of, sort of went along with the flow and, you know, um, you know, did enough to get by, but wasn't really interested academically. And, um, you know, I, I had three teachers that really sort of um, broadened my perspective and made me love learning and, mm. and so, showed show me there was a world outside of, of uh of outside of Wisconsin, quite frankly, so um, where I grew up. Uh, so one of, the, one of the teachers was my geometry teacher, Bill Schutte. Um He was um, a fantastic teacher, and what what he showed me it was that there were multiple ways to solve a mathematical problem, right? And and and, and there was actually there was a type of creativity in math. Yeah. Which I, I never really thought before. I, you know, when usually math is here's the problem, here's the yeah. answer, move to the next problem. But uh, we would spend you know sometimes a week or two just on one or two problems and figure out different ways how we could solve a geometric proof. And I just found that fascinating. It's the way that you know there's more than one solution to any given problem, mm-hmm. and you know some solutions are more elegant than others. So that was very inspiring. Um, another teacher that was very formative to my, um, for me was uh, Larry Cooper, who was my political science t- teacher in high school. And he was, he was very rigorous, but he also showed me that there was multiple ways to approach a problem. So he would, in his class, he would teach um, the four traditional subfields in political science, American, comparative, international relations, and theory. And um, and then he would, you know, he would get these assignments, which were, for, I still remember actually. So you come into class and he give you an article that you haven't read before. You had to read the article and said, "Okay, now analyze this article with the four different subfields of political science." And you had to do it, you know, within fifty minutes of the class period. Um, and again, that's also showed me that there's multiple ways to approach the problem. But also, I think with uh, Larry Cooper, it was that uh, he taught politics in an um, in impartial manner. You, you know, so he wasn't trying to take one side or the other. He wasn't trying to be ideological in the classroom. He really wanted the students to sort of think critically uh, how to approach and understand political topics. And then the final teacher that had an uh, impact on me in high school was Steve Cousins. He was my English teacher um, who not only showed me how to write, but um, he also taught a class over two semesters of uh, Western lit, basically from the Greeks to mid-20th century American literature. And he would choose a representative work from each period that we would read, but then um, while we were reading it, he would also place that representative work of literature in the context of other works of literature at that time. So when we read, say, Antigone, he would say, okay, this is how it's related to Euripides, this is how it's related to Homer, here's how it's related to Plato or Aristotle. And that really opened my eye up to a wider world of knowledge that I didn't really know existed before. And it motivated me to sort of learn more about what that world was. So um, I would say those three teachers in particular had a tremendous influence on me in high school. Um, obviously, I did better in high school having them. But um, just sort of thinking back about it, you know, each personality was very different you know some was some were very funny some were very standoffish but mm-hmm. they all had very high standards mm-hmm. high academic I, I would say almost collegiate standards quite frankly I mean some of I be quite frank some of my freshman level political science classes were 
not as rigorous as what I had in high school. Mm. Uh, and same with some of my English classes too. Um, so they demanded high standards, and and students responded to that. I think they were they were the most popular teachers in the high school, mm-hmm. and so I think if you um, demand excellence of your students, I think most students will respond to that, and most good students uh, recognize that they need it. Mm-hmm. I love that. That triad is a great vision for secondary teaching: high standards, uh, creative approaches to solving problems, and opening up a wider world. That's just beautiful. That's just exactly what I, I think that uh, teachers uh, need to be for their students and the, and the experience that the students uh, should have. That's terrific. Uh, as an undergraduate at Marquette, you studied with the late James Rhodes. Uh, what kind of impact did he have? Uh, well, uh, Jim Rhodes, I guess the best way I could say it is... Um, when Jim Rhodes' mentor died at Notre Dame, Gerhard Niemeyer, uh, Jim Rhodes wrote a beautiful tribute to him, uh, which said something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing here, um, he did he did things that I wanted to do in the way he did for the rest of my life in a, in a vocation of wondrous questioning. And that's what I wanted to do. And I would say that Jim had that same impact upon me. I wanted to pursue a life of wondrous questioning as well. and. Um, um, you know, he, he really was sort of amazing in the classroom. Um, he, he taught the Socratic method in the classroom. He taught political theory, and um, you know, you, you begin his class. You begin his class with a question, um, and then students would respond, and then he would re- try to require students to, when they gave the response, to provide textual evidence and logic in their response, and then he would you um, move from student to student. Um, in a very gentle but an encouraging way, but also in a very rigorous way as well. Um, and he would also be able to show us the relevance of like these obscure tests, from, you know, <laughs> obscure translated tests, why they're relevant to our lives. Sometimes you incorporate current events, sometimes you tell us personal stories. Um, but, you know, in a class of 20, 25 students, he was able to, at least for me, make it feel like a tutorial. You felt like you were being individually taught, yeah. and it, it was really sort of a, a master class, almost a miracle of teaching, um, something I'm still trying to figure out how he did, because it, yeah. it was really an incredible experience. Um, and and I, I may I'll just end with one story on, on Jim Rhodes, or a personal story. So um, one semester, um, I wanted to do an independent study on Eric Vogelin, and um, for some reason, our schedules conflicted, and so he, when, he couldn't be on campus when we were to do the independent study. So I would take the city bus from Marquette campus to Bayshore, Bayshore Mall in, in Milwaukee, and then he would come by, you know, as a good German-American, without fail, you know, 3.15, pick me up at the bus stop, drive me back to his house. Um, we have tea, listen to Bach or other type of baroque music and just talk about Vogelin for two hours uh, and other things as well, life in general and then um, after that his wife would come home we would, I would stay for dinner and then he would drop me back off a of campus or sometimes you'd get his, one of his daughters would drop me back off a of campus but it was really those two hours when we talked about uh, Vogelin, philosophy, theology life were really uh, 
a very special time in my life. I think it, it really felt like sort of the daily cares and necessities and practical demands of life sort of receded away. And you're just, just focusing and contemplating on the highest things, of, you know, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And, um, you know, it's, it's still a time I still treasure today. That's such a beautiful image. And, you know, I would just pray that every student at some point of his or her life had that kind of opportunity to be uh, loved and mentored and, uh, you know, led by, by someone of such tremendous soul and, and insight and wisdom and, and such generous spirit, too. That's such a, that's a wonderful story. Thanks for sharing it with us. So you, you say you're still learning the, the art of teaching or still learning how to you know, conduct yourself uh, in part in imitation of, of, of your great teacher, Jim Rhodes. Do, do you enjoy teaching? You know, I know it's uh, it's something you you have to do. It's part of your your job in life. But you know, is this something you uh, in, in embrace and uh, look forward to? <laughs> but it pays the bills. So. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I'm a little unusual, maybe a little unusual as an academic. So after I graduated from undergraduate, I actually worked corporate for a number of years. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't go straight from undergrad to graduate school, so I, I wasn't necessarily convinced yeah. of, of that. And then when I decided to go back to graduate school, um, it was really because I wanted to teach. Yeah. It's, it's not so much about scholarship or service. I, it really, really, my, my motivation was to go into teaching. And my thought was, you know, even if I don't get an academic job, um, I, I teach in high school or you know something like that. So uh, teaching was always a, a primary motivation for me to pursue the academic life. And um, I, I guess I would say you know teaching, teaching at its best when it happens um, is really a type of uh, like a type of philosophy or a theological activity, right? It's, a, it's the teacher and the student with a text. We're both trying to understand it, and in the hope of gaining um, wisdom, and and that's what you're trying trying to do. And and in that activity, um, when you're trying to understand the text uh, and glean some wisdom from it, is you you are you are you're most free, I think, because you're not really concerned about the utilitarian or practical necessities of learning. You're just trying to understand for its own sake. Um, you know. Hence the idea behind liberal education, and I think that's why you're also the most alive too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, you know, not not every day, obviously. <laughs> Teachers have up days and down days, but when when it does happen, it is probably the most enriching and rewarding experience uh, you can have uh, when you teach. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing that you're like Eric Vogelin, that you, you, you're a steely-eyed realist. So are there, are there challenges to teaching contemporary students? <laughs> and how do you meet them? <laughs> how much time do you have on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, would, I, would, I would say two. I mean, there's several, obviously. But I would list two, and both are related to technology. And okay. These are things I've noticed probably in the last... Uh, 10 years or so. I think first is students' intention span. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just reading actually a, a few weeks ago that the average attention span of students in 2000 was 12 seconds and it's dropped down today to 8 seconds. 
so that, that's what you're against. You're, and uh, part of this is obviously driven through technology, specifically social media. So how do you gain the student's attention? Um, I think that's a huge obstacle uh, for teachers. And it's also an obstacle for learning too, right? Because then how do you teach a student how to read a book from beginning to end? And it makes sense of that, right? If their attention span is so short. So I would say that's one obstacle. Uh, the second one I would mention is also related to technology is uh, I would say students today have knowledge, but they don't have understanding hmm. um, because of the Internet. You know, they have access to all sorts of content information that was not available you know, 40 years ago. So you could have a student write a paper, say, on the Brothers Car Maza without reading it. Right? They can go to Spark Notes or Wikipedia. Read a summary. Read a summary of the book and write it. Or if they, you know, the more clever ones, they can refer to you know, secondary sources on the internet. Just glance at them and, you know, essentially write a critical analysis of the brothers Karamazov. Um, so that's that's, you know, they can have knowledge of that, but I think what they don't have is understanding, right? Uh, and understanding, I would say, is takes place in a community with your teacher and with other students, and you have different perspectives, you debate, you argue, and hopefully at some point you come to some sort of agreement of what the text means in that way. And that, that's a communal activity. Um, and so for teachers today, it's, it's tried to um, foster that type of understanding or inculcate understanding in students. I think a lot of, and I, I do a lot of work in my research on um, teaching and learning and a lot of focus is on knowledge, 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 knowledge. But um, I, I think that's a wrong approach because with technology, knowledge is quite frankly very easy to come by. What we need to focus is, is on understanding. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of brings us to the the challenge of pedagogy, and um, it's not just that we're there. And then that's an interesting question. It's also that you're kind of an expert on um, the Socratic seminar. You're also an expert on the lecture. You've published on both and have a lot to say to our fellow teachers uh, about uh, those two pedagogies. So given the challenges of the contemporary student, or that is teaching the contemporary student, um, how do you sync your understanding of lecture and, and seminar with uh, meeting that challenge? Yeah, I, I think, you know, whether, whether to use the lecture or the seminar method I think it really depends on two prior questions. I think the first question is, what does the teacher want to accomplish in that particular class? And then uh, the second question is, what's the nature of the content they're teaching? So, because I think each one um, deal requires different me methods. So, um, you know, for example, if in my discipline of political science, you know, if I want to teach, say, American political parties uh, and Duverger's law, for example, um, that's probably going to be very difficult to do that in a seminar method because students need to have prior knowledge mm -hmm. of, the, of the content. So the lecture is probably a more effective way to deliver that information to them and say, you know, here's the history of political parties, here are some of the aspects of it. Now we can talk about, you know, this law or that law regarding political parties. Um, on the other hand, if you wanted to do something like 
um, a text in pl- teaching political theory, that's probably more suitable for the seminar method because, um, quite frankly, background knowledge is not that important for students to make sense of the text, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's helpful, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, used, it's useful to know, um, say, when you're teaching the Republic, you know, who Socrates is or, you know, what, what the Peloponnesian War was. But it's not necessary for students to sort of read the text and understand it at some level. And um, so I think the seminar method is probably a better fit in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also in political theory, you want it's a more difficult sell, quite frankly, to students. And so you want students to have feel some sort of ownership of the text. And the seminar method is a good way to do that. Um, whereas, say, American politics, that's an easier sell to students. You know, people want to understand American politics. So a lecture is uh, probably more effective. You don't have to have them, they're already invested in, in the content. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, whether, what you want to try to accomplish and what's the nature of the, the material really is going to dictate whether you use seminar method or, or lecture. Lee, I think a lot of our colleagues, or at least I know within the secondary realm, a lot of teachers today sort of get stumped when they think about giving a good lecture. They, they know they have to deliver some body of information to their students that's important to the students' uh, grasp of whatever sphere of, of inquiry they're engaged in. But I, I think where they really get stumped is is kind of the art of giving a lecture because you know where a seminar has the advantage of being kind of humane. We're all around a table. We're looking at each other. We've got the book. There's a, there's a lively exchange going on. And as you put it earlier, there's a, a personal investment on the part of the student. You called it ownership. Uh, the experience of lecture, in, in some regards, is 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 much more passive, and uh, the the only person speaking for the most part is the teacher until the floor is open to some kind of question and answer. So I, let me come back then to the the one thing I was pointing out is that the the artistry or the art of giving a good lecture is often something that's uh, beyond the grasp of, of teachers trying to craft a good lecture. I, I just wonder if you had any advice to us about the art of a good lecture or how to go about crafting a good one that will be appealing to the students and grab their attention and cut through that short attention span. No, I think that's a great question. Um, it's, it's sort of interesting in academia right now because there's been a lot of pushback against the lecture, right? There's been talk about active learning and flipping the classroom. But if you actually look at our culture, the lecture has, has been, um, you know, as popular as ever. Uh, whether you look at things like TED Talk, or um, I know Michael Sandel gave a, a series of lectures on PBS, What is Justice, maybe 10 years ago. So one thing I would recommend for teachers is to look at what they think are really good lectures, um, whether you know on television or online, and see what try to figure out what they do well. Um, specifically, some of the things I would suggest is um, you probably in a, a good lecture usually requires uh, a type of narrative, or you want to craft a story, so it has a beginning, middle, and end, um, and you, you want to have some sort of payoff. Uh, for the students, so at the end of the lecture, the students can walk away and say, oh, you know, I learned this or I learned that or I didn't think about it this way. Um, another, I think, suggestion would be you probably want to break the lecture up 
into maybe um, 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so you don't want to expound upon a single point more than that, because I think you're going to lose um, the attention of the student. And then uh, thirdly, depending upon the topic, you know, you may want to have, uh, you know, visual or audio components in it, especially if you're teaching something like art or music, um, it, that, that sort of makes it more alive to students. So uh, those are sort of three things off the top of my head. But I think from a sort of course design perspective, you know, the question is, what do you, what do you want to teach the student? Um, you know, what type of um, sort of background knowledge does the student already have and what's they're missing? And how is that related to sort of the, the pedagogical results you're aiming for? Yeah, I think those are really good tips. I think that um, a lot of the teachers who have to lecture in the humanities uh, generally are lecturing um, about history or, or, or lecturing in an historical mode. And a good what you've just done is to remind us that um, history is narrative, uh, in, in the art of it anyway, and um, to, you know, to craft a lecture as you would uh, in studying or reading a really good work of history that's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And um, I think the reminder, too, have something like uh, visuals um, capture the imagination. They're something beautiful to listen to or something beautiful to look at pulls us in and kind of points to the whatever self-evident truth or, or, or body of knowledge that the uh, the lecturer is, is underscoring. Those are great tips. I think we could all go uh, do a better job in our lectures with those. You, you're you a man who, uh, you've already talked about the challenge of technology kind of intruding upon the learning experience of our students today, but you're you're fearless. You've not only got an online journal, but you're expanding your online presence. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the projects you've been working on that uh, expand uh, your work uh, virtually and maybe also are opportunities for the rest of us to, to access what you're up to? Uh, sure. So the uh, most recent thing I've done is, is start a, a newsletter on the Substack platform called Then and Again, which is um, what, what I'm doing every Saturday. I publish an essay sort of on my reflections of teaching um, a core text program for freshmen this semester, and so it's it's um, you know how do how do you teach this particular thinker? Uh, how can it be relevant to students? So that's sort of the latest project. But I've also done online textbooks. I've um, I've um, I've worked. I've taught them online on various platforms: Blackboard, Canvas, Sakai. Um, I work with textbook companies uh, on the online textbooks and even some nonprofit organizations helping do online modules. So um, I've been doing this for the last 20 years, sort of having online, um, learning online teaching, uh, because I think it's, for better or worse, um, you know, this is the future of education. And our students, as they're sometimes called, are digital natives. And, um, you know, we can try to resist it as much as we can, but there may be an opportunity for us to sort of reimagine uh, how to educate students and in a way that's humane and, and still sort of in the best classical tradition of, of education. And so um, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, lately is, you know, how to teach core texts 
um, online effectively to students. Um, and so that's sort of where my current research is at the moment. That's wonderful. So if we want to learn or, or uh, experience some of your then and again reflections, we, we go to Substack and we look up uh, we look up your program by your name or by then and again. How do we do that? Yeah, so you can just go to Substack and type in my name or just type in then and again. Um, or you can always email me too. Um, I'm, I'm sure my email is out there somewhere in the Internet. <laughs> I'd be happy to direct people. Um, that or you know if, if people have any if teachers have any questions if I could be a resource to them I'm happy to help them out as well well Lee we love your work I'm so inspired by what you're doing uh, as a professor as a scholar uh, as a, a teacher you know in the, in the you know, down in the trenches working with your students I love the spirit and uh, the the love that you're approaching everything with, and uh, I'm in awe of your online work and especially uh, the Vogelin view. So, thanks so much for sharing uh, some of that work with us today and your insights. Uh, we're just really grateful you spent some time with us. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's been an honor and privilege speaking with you. Okay, thanks again, Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep that conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zwerneman. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Sources. Sources.